Well, hey, this, uh, this book I've got here, this is a Bible. And this is what we read from and what we study and what we teach from every Sunday morning. And this book is where we find life. And this book is where we learn how to live life. It has, it addresses every area of our lives. And it can do this because it contains the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us who we are. We're a fallen people and we're sinful. And it tells us who he is. He's the savior of the world. He's the one who died on the cross and rose again and ascended to the Father, conquering sin and death. And it tells us that by faith in him and him alone, we can be forgiven. We can have a relationship with God. We can walk with God right here in this world, in our lives. And then we can go and be with him for eternity, which will be an unfolding, wonderful revelation. So what we don't want to do is we don't want to make the mistake of putting this Bible in our Sunday morning box and then leaving it there the rest of the week, thinking that somehow it does not apply to the real world that we live in and the real problems that we face. And I'd like to illustrate that this morning by dealing with a subject that is uh, very personal to me. It, and I'll tell you more about that as we go along. It's the subject of depression. Uh, at any given time in America, approximately 7% of, the, of adults in America, not even including children and teenagers, uh, suffer some sort of significant encounter with depression. And you might be thinking, well, 7%, that's not too bad. Well, not if it's you. Uh, also, 7% adds up to about 17 million people. And here's the deal, though. Those 17 million people have families. And uh, if you've ever had a family member who's been depressed, you know that that depression affects the entire family. <laughs> if you don't know that, you can talk to Karen Jarrett back there, and she'll tell you all about it, okay? So it's a big problem. It's not a new problem. We find it in the Scriptures. We're going to find it in Elijah's life here in a minute. But it is a problem that has gone... Uh, become much more so, shall we say, in a Western, affluent, uh, modern culture like ours. And there are reasons for that. We've got 40 minutes, and I'm already going to cheat, so we're not going to go into the reasons why. But the point is, it's an old problem. It's a new problem. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. And God's people are not immune from, from depression. In fact, if you're here this morning and, uh, and you're struggling with depression, you're in good company. You're in the company of Hannah, the uh, mother of Samuel. You're in the company of King David, my favorite. You're in the company of Elijah, Jeremiah. You're in the company of the Apostle Paul. Oh, yes, we don't want to forget Job. You're in the company of Job. And also, you're in good company here at Covenant Community Church. There are people here who are struggling right now with depression. There are people who have struggled with depression. So you're in a good place if you're here this morning. You're in good company. And as I said, depression is addressed in the Bible. It has much to say about it. But what we're going to do this morning is limit ourselves to one place, one really good place and a big place, where God addresses the subject of depression. It's in 1 Kings 19. So if you want to turn there, uh, that'd be a good idea. And we will begin to look and see what God did in the life of Elijah as he descended into depression. Um, also, I think that we... What I want to do along the way is make observations and applications that hopefully will be helpful to you if you're in, in, in encountering depression right now in your life 
or helpful to you if you're trying to help someone who is suffering from depression. So if we're going to do all that this morning, we better pray. So let's pray, all right? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this time together to gather as your people. And Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy, and you're interested in every area of our lives, and you have truth and mercy and grace for each of those areas. So Father, we pray that this morning as I teach, we will encounter those things. Fill me with your spirit, Father. Enable me and empower me. Give me a clear tongue and a good memory. And as always, we pray that your spirit would be moving uniquely and individually in each person's heart, giving them what they need, words of life, strength, and hope, and wisdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we're going to talk about depression, we should probably define it, right? If you won't believe this, but I almost forgot to do that, okay? So you need to define it. This is, this is my best effort uh, at defining what depression is, and it's, if you've got your notes there, it's actually written down. Depression is a deep and troubling sadness that leads to feelings of hopelessness. And this sadness and hopelessness can ultimately color every area of life, robbing a person of motivation, purpose, value, and meaning. And I think at this point I need to say, too, there are different kinds of depression, and there are different levels of depression. And that's important to remember. And each person who's depressed uniquely experiences that because every person's unique. One of the difficult things about depression is if you've never been depressed, it's very difficult to understand what someone's going through if they are depressed. And if you are depressed, it's very difficult to explain it. So right there, you can see how uh, a person who's depressed uh, could feel alone. And that's, uh, that's a point I wanna make right up front. There's two things that depression whispers to us. The first one is that we're alone, and I've already talked about how you're not alone. You're not alone in scripture, and you're not alone here at Covenant, and you're not alone with the God that loves you. But it also tells you that everyone else is fine, okay? Everyone's not fine. I know this. I'm in a position to know this, right? And so those are the two things, and I've heard that over and over again. I'm all alone. No one understands. Everyone's doing fine but me. Those are lies. They're lies from the enemy. They are not true. So keep those in mind as we move through this, okay? All right. Let me give you some background here to 1 Kings 19. Otherwise, this story is not going to make much sense. Um, Israel uh, is in two kingdoms. There's the ten northern tribes that's referred to as the kingdom of Israel. There are two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They're, they're referred to as the kingdom of Judah. Elijah is a prophet in Israel, the ten northern tribes, and, and they have had a string of evil kings. And the current king, when Elijah comes on the scene, is Ahab. And he's married to a woman named Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, and she is incredibly evil. And we'll talk about her more in a minute. So they immediately come in conflict, Elijah and, and Ahab. And what Elijah does at God's direction, he pronounces a drought. And for three and a half years, there was not a drop of rain on the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And we just had six weeks without rain here in Oklahoma. Do you see how brown everything got? Well, you can imagine, and we can imagine because we're Oklahomans, we know what drought looks like. Three and a half years, not one drop. Everything is dying. And then at God's direction, Elijah tells Ahab, you bring everybody to Mount Carmel. You bring the nation, you bring those prophets of Baal, and you come. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a contest, and we're going to see who the real God is, 
And whoever wins that contest, we're going to worship him, right? And everyone agrees. That's a good idea. So the prophets of Baal come, and Elijah comes at Mount Carmel, and they each build an altar, and they lay a sacrifice on that altar, and then they're going to call down out to God, and whoever brings down fire from heaven, that's the true God. And so the prophets of Baal go first, and they cry out to God all day long, and they, they scream, they holler, they dance, they gas themselves, they bleed, they do all kinds of things, and by evening time, they have given up. And then Elijah takes over, and he lays his sacrifice on the altar, and then he drenches it three times with gallons and gallons and gallons of water. Then he calls out one time, and the God of heaven answers. And fire comes down, it, it consumes the sacrifice, it consumes the wood that the sacrifice is laying on, it consumes the rocks, it consumes the water, even the dirt all around it. It is a complete wipeout, and everyone hits their knees and proclaims that the Lord God is God and we will worship him. Not a bad day for a prophet of Israel. And then to top it off, Elijah tells Ahab, well, well, to top it off, they also, the, the Israelites together with Elijah destroyed the 400 prophets of Baal, killed them, okay, because they, and you have to understand that they had, Jezebel and Ahab and the prophets of Baal, they had led Israel into the deepest kind of darkness. There was sin, there was evil, there was perversion, there was immorality, there was infant sacrifice, it's violence. It was, it was a dark, dark time. And these were the perpetrators of it. When the people's eyes were opened, uh, Elijah, they, they, they got rid of them as well they should have. And then to top it off, Elijah says to Ahab, you better uh, get on your chariot and get back to Jezreel because it's going to rain. It's going to rain a lot. And then finally, Elijah, just to, I guess you'd say, to put a, a bow on top, then he outruns Ahab. And Ahab's in a chariot, right? So, so you step back at that and you think, wow, that is one of the most amazing stories in Scripture and what prophet had an experience like that? And you think, this man is really something, and his faith in God is really something, and God's hand on him is really something. And you're thinking, this is the best day ever. Well, the problem is he defeated all of his enemies except one, and as I mentioned, her name was Jezebel. And she was an interesting woman. She was not an Israelite. She was married to Ahab. She was the one that drew them deeper into Baal worship, and she was a dangerous woman. She was dark, she was evil, and she was murdering. And so we encounter, uh, in, in, excuse me, in 1 Kings 19, we encounter Elijah in Jezreel, where, where Ahab and, and Jezebel live, and he gets a message. And so we see it in verses 1 through 3, uh, King James, excuse me, 1 uh, Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more, if I do not make your life as one of them by tomorrow, about this time. And he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. And so what we see here is a man running for his life uh, suddenly you find him vulnerable to fear and anxiety. And you don't have to be fearful and anxious to be depressed, but it's a great way to get there. And that's how Elijah got there. We look at that and we think, now why in the world would a man like Elijah be afraid of Jezebel, as dangerous as she was, after all that he'd accomplished and the boldness and the courage he had shown? 
Well, what that illustrates is everyone has a weakness to fear and anxiety. Everyone has a chink in their armor. And if it's not the chink in your armor, you don't understand it. And that's the way depression is. If you see someone who's depressed and you've not been depressed, it's difficult to understand that. And here the, here's the deal. If you relate to someone who's depressed from your strength, you will never be of any help to them. If you relate to them from your weakness, in other words, okay, if depression, anxiety, or fear are your weaknesses, what are mine? What do I have trouble getting a handle on in my life? What can I not handle? And that's what depression is for them. And so at that point then, that's where wisdom and compassion starts for any of us who know someone who's depressed and want to be of help to them. So we relate to them from our weakness, not our strength. The other thing I think we see here too is anyone, uh, even the most unlikely person, can become depressed. And Elijah would be the last person in the world you would assume would have any problem with depression. So that's a couple of observations, just in verses 1 through 3. But we go on in verse 4, and we see that depression is isolating. Let me read verse 4 to you. He says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now he is... He's, he's, there's something, it's interesting, there's something about depression that makes you want to be alone and think it's a good idea. It is not a good idea. And that's illustrated here, I think, by, by Elijah. He, his darkness just grew darker, right, to the point where he wanted to die. And there's lots of reasons that we, that we do that, that we, that we seek to be alone when we're, when we're struggling with depression. You know, pride is one of them. Uh, speaking from a man's perspective, the two things that we despise and I despise is feeling weak and stupid. And when you're depressed, can't speak for women, but if you're a guy, you feel weak and you feel stupid. And you don't want to talk to anybody about being weak and stupid. Okay? A shame. I shouldn't be like this. I should be able to get out of this. What's wrong with me? And we're ashamed of that, and that brings isolation as well. Emotional exhaustion, just trying to figure it out in your mind what's wrong and how to get out of it. When I was struggling with depression from 1995 to 2003, um, I, would, I would fall into depression, fight my way out, fall back in, fight my way out. It's not like I don't know anything about depression. And I thought, I can do this. And it turns out I couldn't do this. But in that time, oftentimes Karen would be, be together and she'd look at me and go, Ron, where are you? I'd go, what? I'm gone. I'm, I'm in my mind, miles away, just lost in, in pain, okay? And that would happen over and over again. So depression is isolating, and we see uh, Elijah doing a great job of isolating himself in the southern wilderness south of Beersheba. Also, I think, too, uh, you know, we can become, I think I mentioned, we can become convinced that we can figure it out, and, and oftentimes that keeps us isolated as well. But I think also in verse 4, we see that depression is linked to hopelessness. He said, it's enough, O Lord, take my life. In other words, I've had enough. I can't go on living life the way it is in this present form. And that kind of hopelessness takes a number of different forms. It can be quitting. I mean, like as in quitting your job. Uh, it can take the form of disappearing. Depressed people often begin to pull back from commitments and relationships and slowly begin to disappear if they can. Uh, shutting down emotionally and relationally, kind of like me, just lost in my own world. Uh, I, would, I would go to work, 
I'd come home and I'm in my own world at home and only Karen and my kids knew that. Um, it can go worse than that. It can be a desire for death. Uh, Elijah wasn't suicidal. He didn't want to kill himself. He just wanted God to do it for him. Uh, he, wanted, he wanted to be over. But it can get that way. Depression can take you to suicidal thoughts and beyond thoughts. It can take you to suicidal plans and suicidal actions where you try to hurt yourself and take your own life. So this hopelessness uh, and this darkness can descend and you keep descending deeper and deeper and deeper. And we see Elijah down at the bottom or near the bottom saying, I just want to die. Please help me die. Um, and, you know, for Elijah, you think, let me put it this way. One of the things that depression does, it brings you to the end of yourself and it brings you to the end of your resources where you have nothing left. And for Elijah, that meant he could no longer be a prophet of Israel. And for him, it's like, if I'm not a prophet of Israel, what, what, why am I here and what good is life? And so that's often what hopelessness does. It brings you to the point where you have nothing left inside. And that can come from different things. You, it can be psychic pain where you come to the end of yourself because there's so much pain and so much darkness and loss in your mind and you can't get past it. It can come from relational pain where you have a broken relationship, a significant relationship that you cannot repair. It can come from physical pain where you've lost your health. That can bring depression. It can be circumstantial pain where, they, where circumstances and events of life have come together in such a way that you are overwhelmed and you can no longer handle it and your resources have been spent and it's not enough. It can also just be from physical and emotional exhaustion. Okay? So, also, uh, I think we see in verses 5 through 8 that depression can be linked to our physical condition. So let me read verses 5 through 8, and we'll see what we find there. It says, He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat because the journey is too great for you. So he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. If you think about what Elijah had done, that encounter on Mount Carmel had to take all the physical energy he had. And then when he got that little note from Jezebel, he ran for his life. And by now he's probably traveled 70, 80 miles on foot. And so he is completely, totally spent. He probably hadn't ate or drank a thing. And so the first thing that God does is address his physical condition. Now, there's a principle there. When we, if we find ourselves in depression or we find ourselves with a loved one who's falling into depression, one of the first things we want to do is go to the doctor and have him check us out and see what's going on. And I think this is a good, because oftentimes there are things going on. Sometimes we've been involved in overwork, uh, overcommitment. Sometimes we haven't slept right, we haven't eaten right. Sometimes there's an underlying physical issue that can cause depression. And this is a good place to talk about medication, antidepressants and anxiety medicines. You know, in our culture, we, we have something called modern medicine. And there are special graces that God gives. The gospel is a special grace. But there's general graces that God pours out on all mankind rain. I mean, just, just endless, the graces that God pours out. But one of them he's poured out on our culture and our time is modern medicine. That's a grace that God's given. And we're supposed to take advantage of it. He's given us medicines. He's given us antidepressants. He's given us anti-anxiety drugs. And here's the way we need to look at those. In our culture, oftentimes we say, take a pill so you don't have to deal with your problems. 
for the Christian, it's like, no, these medicines, they're designed to give me the strength and stability that I need in order to face the problems in my life, in my outer life, in my inner life. And in that setting then, I can. And then when I have worked through those things as best I can, I may or may not remain on medicine. Some people can work through depression and they don't get on medicine. Other people do and other people stay on it. All of that is good. All of that is God's grace. He uses modern medicine and he uses antidepressants and he uses anti-anxiety drugs. And that is not failure. That is entering into God's grace. And that's important for us as believers. I think most believers have moved past that stigma. If you haven't, you need to. Okay, that's there for you if you need that, and oftentimes you will need that. Okay, so that's my thought on, on that area. Now, from this point on, verses 8 through 18, we begin to see God deal with Elijah. We've seen his descent into depression, and hopefully we've seen some principles here. One, weakness, fear, and anxiety can lead you into depression. It's isolating, it's hopelessness, and it can have a physical uh, problem associated with it. That can be a physical as far as your body. It can be a physical as far as your brain chemistry. So we've seen those things so far, but now God begins to deal with him in earnest. And so I want to read these verses to you, being at uh, verse 9, actually. And then he came to a cave. So uh, let me go to eight, back to 8 again. So he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that, of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. And he came to a cave and lodged there. And, in, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, where are you? What are you doing? Excuse me. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him again and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. Let's stop right there, okay? First thing, recovery takes time in a safe place. Uh, the journey from where Elijah was to Mount Horeb, about two weeks, 14 days on foot. He's out there for 40 days. Now, why is he out there for 40 days? He's not lost. He knows where he's going. What God is doing is he is pulling Elijah away, giving him time. It takes time to work through depression. And he's also giving him a safe place. In the wilderness, no one can find him. No one can threaten him. No one can ask anything from him or make demands on him. He is alone, but it's a different kind of alone. It's alone with God, and that's called solitude. And that's a completely different kind of aloneness and depression that we talked about earlier. He is alone with God. He is safe. He is in solitude, and he's taking, he's taking his time going to his journey to Mount Horeb. Okay? And that kind of, you know, it's hard because every situation, every person's life is different, but a safe place and time is necessary for any person who's struggling significantly with depression. And that safe place and that time, like I say, it has to be understood and figured out oftentimes by employers, by family, 
or by the person themselves what is possible and what's not possible, okay? Um, and that's very, very important. I'll talk more about that here in a little bit. Um, and the deeper the depression, the more time and the more safety we need. And that's called refuge, by the way. God refers to himself in Psalm 62.8 as a refuge. And a refuge is a safe place, a place where you can heal, where you can be nourished, where you can be strengthened and where you can rest, and then ultimately return to your life. Okay? And so God has created a refuge for him. So that's the first thing we see. In verses 9 and 10, we see recovering from depression involves pouring out the darkness. Notice the art of the question and the lack of condemnation. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? So what are you doing here, Elijah? That's an invitation to talk. God's saying, talk to me. Tell me what is in your heart and what is in your mind. And then he says, what are you doing here? See, he's come to Mount Horeb. He knows where he's at. That's the mountain of God. And God is saying, you've come to the right place. You've come here looking for me. And then he look at it again. What are you doing here, Elijah? I know you. I know who you are. I made you. I saved you. I called you, and I love you. And uh, you're here in your right place. So God invites him without condemnation to simply pour out the darkness within him. And then he does that, and there are six things that Elijah says, and each of them represents a different mindset or emotional state that I think is important. First, he says, I've been zealous for the God of hosts. Well, he called him the God of hosts on Mount Carmel. Uh, that's the same God that, he, that uh, King David called on before he defeated Goliath. And so he says, I have been zealous for the God of hosts. See, now implied in there is, I've done my part, where are you? Where were you when I got that note? Where were you when Jezebel threatened me? Why didn't you show up like you did before? And so I've been the faithful one, and you, God, have not been the Lord of hosts to me. That's, that's disappointment and bitterness toward God. And oftentimes, you scratch the surface of a depressed Christian, and you'll find disappointment and bitterness toward God on some level. Because why? Because God hasn't done what, what he's supposed to do, at least in our minds, right? So that's the first thing. And then he says, the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Well, that's failure because a, a prophet's all about returning to the covenant. And then you might be stepping back and saying, no, well, now wait a minute. God just poured down fire. We just defeated all of his enemies but one, and the Israelites all bowed the knee and proclaimed him God. What are you talking about, Elijah? And see, that's another thing about depression is when you're depressed, reality starts to get a little skewed and you can't see things as they really are. And see, the truth is these things are not true. They're true in his mind. They're real in his mind, but they're not true. But they still have to be poured out because that's part of the darkness. He has become confused and darkened in his thinking about who God is and how God treats him. Then it goes on, they've torn down your altars. Well, that's discouragement. Whatever there's failure, there's discouragement. And they've killed your prophets. That's loss. These are, probably, these are probably very personal loss. These are probably men that he knew, men that had the same ministry that he had. And losses are very personal and also a great source, if you will, uh, for depression. There are two kinds of losses. They're tangible and intangible. A tangible loss is loss of health, uh, death, uh, loss of a significant relationship, um, those are things, loss of, of, of your finances, loss of reputation, loss of job. Those are tangible losses that can bring depression. There are also intangible losses that have to do with hopes and dreams and plans. 
And any of those are in that category of losses and they can bring depression. He's expressing this loss. It's a very personal and great loss to him. And he says, I'm alone, I alone am left. Uh, in other words, there's no one to help me. There's no one to help me in my outer life. I'm alone. And there's no one to help me in my inner life to reach in and help me with what's going on inside. And finally, he says, they seek my life, which means my life is over. Now, that's not pretty. Uh, that's dark and that's painful. And that's exactly what God was looking for when he asked the question. Because in t- until we pour out, and this is true for all of us, whether you're struggling with depression or not, until we pour out the darkness and pain in our hearts, God is not going to pour in his light and truth and healing. That's why he says in Psalm 62, 8, I am, I am a refuge for you and pour out your heart to me. Pour it out and then I'll pour in. And he's inviting Elijah to pour out the darkness Some of it's real, some of it's not real, but it's all real to him and it's all dark and it's all painful and it is not pretty. And here's the thing, uh, in depression, if you don't find the freedom to pour out your heart to God and tell him where you are, honestly, as a believer, you're not gonna get out of depression. That's one of the key ingredients in terms of, of, of healing from depression is being able to have the freedom to pour out your heart to a God of grace who, this is Old Testament here, right? And God is going, there's no condemnation here. In fact, God invites him again to say it again to make sure that we get it all out. Now, Elijah is a special case because he's a, he is a prophet in the Old Testament. He talks to God and God talks to him out loud. And in this situation, he only talked to God. Now, we are not prophets of the Old Testament and we are in the New Testament, the church age, okay? And we are the body of Christ. and We belong to each other. There's over 31 in other verses how we're supposed to relate to each other relationally and intimately. And we are to pour out our hearts to God and to each other, at least one other person. And until that is done, it's very, very difficult. You cannot get out of depression by yourself. That's one of the lies of depression. You think you can figure it out yourself. You isolate yourself. You think I can get this. You cannot get this. You cannot get this without pouring out your heart to God and at least one other person. And that's where courage comes in. Reaching out to another person or persons, because usually it takes more than one, uh, and pouring out the darkness, that's hard to do because, well, it looks weak and stupid, right? So it's, hard, it's a difficult thing, but it's one of the most important things to do if you're depressed this morning or if you're trying to encourage someone who is, who is depressed. I know um, for me, you know, we ended up going to Sunscape in Colorado in 2003 and I remember we sat down with them and he asked, Larry asked a question almost identical to what God asked Elijah. He goes, so why are you here, Ron? And I thought, okay, here we go. And I poured out everything and Karen did too. And at the end of that, Larry leaned forward and he looked at me and he said, Ron, you are very, very, very depressed and you have a very large reservoir that you work out of and it's completely absolutely empty and you might be thinking well that's depressing (laughs) but I was already depressed so and it wasn't actually what it was it was words of life to me because I realized I have found the right people in fact I told them later I said I've been looking for you for eight years I found the people the, the two people besides Karen who really understood. And as wise as Karen is, 
She didn't know what to do with me. But they knew what to do with me. And I thought, these people can help me. And they did help me. And I was able to move out of that. And it's interesting how we, how we ended up there. You know, it's a very gracious story. I mean, well, let me, I'll just save that for a little later. We'll, we'll, we don't want to lose track here. Um, so so you, have to, you have to be courageous. You have to pour out your heart to at least one other person. You have to find people who can help you. And that may be a good, wise friend. It might be an elder. It might be a pastor. It might be a counselor. But whoever they are, you've got to find them. And you might not find them first thing off, but don't give up. They're there, and God will provide them for you. But it starts with courage, okay? You have to reach out. You have to be vulnerable. You have to look bad, right? We all love to look bad, right? All right, going on, verses 11 and 18. For every believer, uh, what's required of us to begin to move through depression is a renewed picture of God. Because the next thing God does after Elijah pours out his heart, God begins to reveal himself, and he does it this way. First of all, we see God's power. There's a great wind, a strong wind, earthquake, fire. In other words, the whole place is coming apart. And why is God doing that? Because, see, Elijah's view of God had grown from very big to very small very quickly to the point where he no longer saw God as any real alternative in helping him in his situation and in his depression. So the first thing God does is shows his power. And the idea, you know what the idea about God is? He doesn't have power. He is power, right? And so he's reminding him, do you know who I am? Do you know who you're dealing with? Remember, I am the great God of heaven. Okay, I can do anything. So that's the first thing. And then comes God's presence. That's the gentle blowing. There's a gentle wind. It's sweet. It's gentle. It's tender. And really, I think it's a picture of the Spirit of God bringing grace and healing and renewing to Elijah. And it's out of the wind, that, br- that breeze, that gentle breeze, that God speaks again. What are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, tell me again. Again, no, just only acceptance, no condemnation. And then finally then, God says this. Uh, we'll, go, we'll go to f- verses, uh, where am I at here? Verses 15 to 18. Then God says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to show you my power. The Lord said, and go and return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of, <coughs> excuse me, Shaphat of Abel Mahole, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And you shall come, about, shall come about that the one who escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha will put to death. And yet I still have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and that and mouths have not kissed him. And so what God does here is he begins to bring provision uh, to Elijah. Hazael, he will be the king of Aram, which will ultimately defeat the nation of Israel, again, continuing to be led by evil kings. Uh, he'll anoint, uh, actually, Elisha does. He'll anoint Jehu, uh, who will in one day kill the evil king of Israel and the evil king of Judah, and then he will completely purge Baal worship from the entire land of Israel. These are future events, right? So what's God, so, and then, then he brings Elisha. He says, Elisha will be your companion. He'll minister to you. He'll be a prophet that will take your place. And oh, by the way, there's 7,000 people that are still faithful to God. And so he's entering into his darkness, but he's entering into a very practical, spiritual, and, and encouraging way. The spiritual is Elisha. Elisha comes along. The thing about um, Elijah is he'd always been the lone wolf, Right? He just kind of shows up and things happen. But 
now he has a, a companion. He has a friend. He has someone who God has specifically called to come alongside Elijah and minister to him. And Elisha is just like Elijah. He is strong. He's a prophet. And uh, he is someone that Elijah can lean on and share the load with. So it's spiritual and practical. But even more practical is Hazael and Jehu. Okay? Sometimes there are situations in your life that are more than you can deal with. And you need strong people to come alongside and deal with them for you. Sometimes that's the source of some of your depression. And so God says, I've got some men. And the things that you can't handle, trust me, they can. And they will. And then encouragement. 7,000 people. Listen, Elijah, there's still 7,000 people that listen to you. They love you. They value your counsel and your word. And they love me. So, recovering from depression takes human help. You can't do it alone. Another thing we see in verses 15 to 18, recovering from depression will require change in how you live and operate. Uh, depression has a way of humbling us and breaking us of our independence, um, convincing us of our need for people, convincing us our need for deeper relationships, convincing us of our need for, for transparency, uh, and convincing us of our need for a deeper walk with God as well. Um, and so... What we see here is Elijah now, he's no longer going to be the guy he was before. He's going to be a great prophet, and he still has great work to do. And you can read on in 1 Kings and see what he does, even in 2 Kings. Um, but he's not going to be the same, and, and that's a good thing. Um, I think, you know, I, I remember re here, reading uh, Tommy Nelson, who was kind of like a guy like Elijah. You never thought he'd fall into depression. He has a tremendous story. Talk about fear and anxiety and depression is a remarkable story. And he falls into and, and describes the, the pain and the anguish and the heartache and the difficulty of, of climbing out of that and how God met him. And one of the guys that helped him was Steve Levitt, who was a good friend and a counselor and, and uh, it was a great help to him. And, and he makes the comment, they wrote a book together, they've, they've done interviews together, and, and he makes the comment that when you come out of depression, you will, you'll be less than you were before. And that's not a bad thing. You'll be less in ways that make you more dependent on God, less in ways that make you more open to help and encouragement to other people, less in ways that you allow people to come in deeper and know you uh, instead of protecting yourself. So you are diminished, you are less, and it's all good. And uh, that's the story of Elijah there too. So in some ways it turns out being stupid and weak is not a bad idea. So we can go with that. Now, let me just wrap up here with just a few thoughts before we run out of time here. I think for the believer, depression, I think it's important to realize it is not a failure. It is a trial. It is a trial that God has allowed to come upon you. And that's important because then if it's a trial, then all the promises uh, that God gives regarding trials become ours uh, when we're struggling. It's also deeply personal. It's a peculiar kind of trial. It's like no other. Um, and, the, and the thing is, I think that we need to understand that God will bring people to help us who can understand our suffering. It may take a while to find them, but he'll bring them. But most of all, only God can understand the suffering in your mind and your heart and the darkness and the pain. And he's the one that will lead you through it or lead you out of it. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes God delivers us completely from depression like he did Elijah. Elijah was never depressed again. 
Sometimes God chooses in his sovereign grace and mercy to lead us through it, not necessarily out of it. But when I say through it, what he does, he brings mercies and healings and graces and special things all along the way. So depression can be a thorn in the flesh. It can be something that never completely leaves you, but I think you can expect God to bring great remedy and great help and great encouragement and great healing to you in that context. I've seen him do both. It's remarkable what he does in and through uh, these people that he chooses to do that with. So he may do one or the other. That is up to him. But either way, you will know God in a way that you've never known him before. And several things are true. So let me just wrap up with those. He will bring every resource to bear. He will bring everything to bear. And the important thing when you're depressed is not to resist those resources. It's very easy when you're depressed to resist the people that can actually help you, the books that can actually help you, the places that can actually help you. You know, it was 2003, I think it was February 11th, it was a Tuesday morning, and I was sitting in my office, and I was pouring out my heart to God, and I, was basically, and I just said, I'm done. I cannot do this anymore. I don't know where to find help, but I can't, I can't be this. I can't be a pastor anymore. And, and then I just sat there, and my mail was sitting on my desk, and I started flipping through my mail, and there was this packet about that big from Sunscape. And I'd contacted Sunscape for some other ministry situation months ago. It had nothing to do with me, because I'm fine, right? Um, so, and, and I looked at that, and I thought, what is that? And I opened it up, and I began to read. And they read who they are, what they do. There's a schedule, the kind of retreats they have. They're small, they're intimate. There's personal counselors. All, they just told everything. And I read it, and I, I think I read it six times. And each time I was filled with fear and excitement. And I had a choice at that point. I could have gone, you know, I don't know these people. And, and they're in Colorado, and I know they're highly recommended. And I'm going to have to talk to Carlin. I'm going to have to tell the elders. It would have been really easy to go, no, no, I'm just out of here. Okay? But I didn't. And see, that's important because sometimes when you're depressed, you say no to help. You say no to the actual help that you need, and you won't take it. Don't do that. That's not what you want to do. By that evening, Carl and I were at Bonnie and Carlin's house, and we were sharing what was going on with us. Two weeks later, we were at Sunscape. It usually takes months to get into Sunscape. We were there two weeks later. And after our time at Sunscape, the elder board being the gracious men they are, and gave me a two-month sabbatical, a safe place and time to get better. And you know what's interesting? On that sabbatical, it lasted basically two months. For the first six weeks, I cried every day. And then suddenly I stopped crying. Don't cry now. Okay, so, um, but the point was I needed a safe place and I needed time to work through what Larry and Barb Magnuson had told me to work through. And for me, depression was centered around losses, unresolved, ungrieved losses that had happened to me in so many different ways and uh, for eight years. And I just, I just hadn't dealt with it. Didn't know how to deal with it. Didn't know what was wrong with me. But they knew what was wrong with me. But you can't just do that. You have to have time and a place. And so they did that for me. And again, that was my story. Everyone's story is different. But my point is, when help comes, don't, don't reject it. The second thing is you'll see his goodness. Psalm 27, 13 says, I would have despaired if I had not believed that I'd see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. See? The land of the living. See, when you're depressed, you're in despair, and you don't believe anymore 
that you're going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You belong to him. You're his child by faith in Christ. You will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's where hope begins. Also, you'll, you'll have to wait on him, and you'll have to trust him. That's the rest of the verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. It takes time, and we, you have to trust God, and you have to wait for him. He does his work. He does it deeply. In fact, that's the, really the next point. He works slowly. He works deeply, and he works with eternity in mind. Oftentimes, there's, there's, you know, sometimes I step back and go, we're all so fallen, it's unbelievable. No wonder the renewing of the mind goes on our whole lives. And God, in the midst of depression, he's digging deeply into our souls, into our hearts, and our minds, doing things that can only be done by him, and they're done slowly, and they're done deeply, and he does take his time. But it's an eternal work that's preparing us for eternal life with him. So stick with him. He is good, and you will see his goodness. Uh, also, don't miss what he's doing in you and through you in your weakness. It's amazing how God will use you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your weakness, even as he's healing you. And again, don't do it alone. Uh, be courageous. Uh, reach out for help. Um, we have a good and gracious Father who loves us very much. Let's pray, okay? Father, thanks for the time together. Thanks for your word. And I pray, Father, that this has been a help and encouragement and a strength to those who need it here this morning. Father, I pray for them. Uh, anyone who's depressed this morning, who has a loved one who's depressed, I pray that you give them courage, that you'd give them hope, you'd give them strength, you'd renew their, their eyes so they might see you as you are, and they might experience, Father, your, your grace and your mercy. Be good to them, Father. You are good, and you do good, and you are a God of deliverances. Our eyes are on you, and our hope is in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.